Mark Twain said, and only the way Mark Twain could say it, few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. With somewhat less sarcasm, D.L. Moody said, a good example is far better than a good precept. We, under, we all understand that there's great teaching power in an example, as we say often, more is caught than taught. It's kind of an axiomatic thing that we say from time to time. And as we'll see, Jesus also believed that there was great teaching power in an example. So again, if you're visiting with us this morning, you know we've been working our way through the Gospel of John. As I said, we've been on a hiatus for eight weeks. We, of course, did Christmas. We had our Advent series and our children's ministry lesson, and then we did our prayer Sunday and our vision Sunday, and then I was gone a week. And so we've been away for eight weeks. And so this morning, we finally return to John, and we come to John chapter 13. And this chapter is a significant chapter in the Gospel of John because it forms kind of a major division for the Gospel of John. You can divide the Gospel of John into two halves, maybe, uh, verses 1 through 12, the first half of the Gospel. You might call the book of signs, the book of signs. And it's within these chapters that John tells us about the miracles that Jesus performed, which we spent the better part of a year uh, looking at. Again, the miracles are the signs that Jesus performed, and there are a total of seven signs contained in the first 12 chapters of the book. Can you recall each one of them? I don't know if you remember them. Of course, I'm sure you remember the first one. Jesus' first miracle was when he turned the water into wine there in John chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana. The second sign was that healing he did of the nobleman's son. He healed the man's son from afar. It was kind of a significant aspect of that healing. That was in John chapter 4. The third miracle that we discussed and we worked through was the healing of the man paralyzed for 38 years. That was in John chapter 5. In John 6, he fed 5,000, 5,000 men, probably over 10,000 people he fed with a little boy's lunch. You remember that five barley loaves and two small fish. In John 6, he also walked on water. That would be the fifth sign. The sixth, the sixth sign is the, the healing of the man blind from birth. Of course, you recall that one. That was in John 9. And kind of the apex of the book of signs, or the apex of this first half of John's gospel, was the raising of a man from the dead. And that's the last miracle that we studied in the Gospel of John. You remember, of course, Jesus called forth Lazarus from the grave in John chapter 11. And John tells us, the, the writer of this gospel, he tells us why he recorded all of these signs in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It's the purpose statement for the book, and we reviewed it a number of times. He said that these signs were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. So he's recording these signs so that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing, we would have life. We would have eternal life. And so if chapters 1 through 12 is the book of signs, chapters 13 through 17, we would call, we could call the book of glory, the book of glory. In these chapters, the public ministry of Jesus is finished, and his focus transitions over to his disciples. And these chapters contain what is commonly called the upper room 
discourse, the upper room discourse, or the farewell discourse. If you have a red letter Bible, this is that section of your Bible where it's like, it's all red. It's a long section of Jesus talking. And so that's the section of scripture that we're entering into this morning. And there's a significant action that happens at the outset of this discourse. And it's the washing of the disciples' feet. The washing of the disciples' feet. And it's this action that Jesus will use to illustrate something very, very important for his disciples and very important for us. And we're going to say it this way, and this is the big idea this morning. Jesus' example of humble service gives us two truths of the Christian calling or of our Christian calling. Jesus' example of humble service gives us two truths of our Christian calling. Look down at verse 1. Here we have kind of an introductory verse, John 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. This verse is, as I've said, an introduction to the foot washing, and it gives us an important time marker of our text. Notice it says there, before the feast of Passover, before the feast of Passover. As you know, the the Passover was one of those holy festivals celebrated by the Jews. This feast was done, celebration was done annually every year to commemorate that last meal that Israel had while in Egypt before God sent them free and out into the wilderness toward the promised land. This feast was one of three what they call pilgrimage feasts, which simply means that there are three feasts out of the year that all the men were required to leave their villages and come to celebrate the festival in Jerusalem. And this is one of those feasts. The other two would be Pentecost and Tabernacles, for those taking notes, I suppose. As you might imagine, in the days leading up to such a festival, the city would be swelling with people. The stone paths and the crooked corridors of the city would teem with all kinds of people and all kinds of animals that people had brought to make sacrifices. In the days of Jesus, there's no doubt that what would have been on the minds of all of these people that had gathered in Jerusalem would have been this man, Jesus of Nazareth, this man who did so many healings and did so many signs. Certainly, they would be wondering, is he going to come here now and teach more or do a miracle? We can hear the racket of the crowd as they ponder who this man from Nazareth is. But there is a shift in John 13, in this chapter of John. Jesus has proven already through his signs, and he's argued with his words, that he is, in fact, the Son of God. He's done with that. He's demonstrated that he is the Son of God. And so the world has already heard his testimony. The world has seen his divine acts. He's turned water to wine. He's healed the sick. He's made the lame walk. He's fed the multitudes. He's walked on water. He's given sight to the blind. He's even raised the dead to life. All that is already done. And so in John 13, Jesus shuts the door. There's a transition, and the shift is dramatic. He's proven already who he is, and so now here he is in a room with his disciples. The crowds are outside. 
The maneuvering through people has ended. The din of the crowd has subsided. And so the setting has very much changed in John 13. Jesus has shut the world out and has gathered his disciples together in this intimate place to deliver, really, some of the loftiest words that have ever been spoken in the history of the world in these chapters. And so it's here in this intimate setting that Jesus gives us an example of humble service. This introduction in verse 1 not only helps us to place the events in their proper setting, but it makes the point that Jesus is in command over the situation and everything, frankly, that's going to follow this last week of his life. It says, now before the Feast of, Feast of Passover, excuse me, when Jesus knew, it says, that his hour had come. Jesus knew that his hour had come. He was not taken by surprise. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. John's gospel mentions in a number of places that Jesus was sent from the Father. It's a, it is a kind of a theme in the gospel. If you did a word study, you'd see that repeatedly John speaks like that, that Jesus was sent from the Father. So Jesus came from God, and so Jesus will return to God when his hour of departure comes. This introductory verse finally ends with what seems to be a kind of redundancy. It says there at the end, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them, it says, to the end. He loved them to the end. This verse teaches us two things about the love of Jesus. First, we learn something about the focus of Jesus' love. The focus of Jesus' love is on his own, it says, who were in the world. His own who were in the world. There's a distinction between the, law, the, the mass of lost humanity and the mass of, you might say, loved humanity. Jesus doesn't love everyone salvifically. There's a general kind of love that God has for all people. For God so loved the world, it says, that he gave his one and only son, his unique son, that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There's a general love for all people, but there is a specific salvific love, you might say, a saving love that he has for only a certain amount of people. And that's what we learn here, we see here, at least on display. It's the focus of Jesus' love is on his own who are in the world. Jesus had a group of people in the world that he loved. He didn't love all those in the world in this way. He loved his own who were in the world. Again, having loved his own who were in the world, it says he loved them to the end. And so we see the focus of his love is on those who he saves. And also then we see the extent of his love is to the end, to the end. So the focus and extent of Jesus's love here in this verse he loved his own to the end. The sense here is more than mere death alone, although certainly includes death alone, but John is saying something more here. He loved them to the uttermost, to the uttermost. He loved them in full supreme measure. I'm trying to capture the, the sense of the words here. He loved them to the last breath, you might say. This is love in its highest intensity, love in its highest intensity. Spurgeon put it this way, quote, our Lord's affection for his people is not a transient passion. He loved them or ever the earth was. He continues still to love them. 
and he will always love them when these heavens and this earth shall have passed away. End quote. And so, having introduced the scene in verse 1, we see the example of humble service, as I'm calling it, the example of humble service, comes in verses 2 through 5. Look down at verse 2. Our text continues, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, verse 4, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Notice, first off, in these verses, Jesus, or John tells us that there was a betrayer in their midst. There was a betrayer in their midst. Judas Iscariot, and it was Satan himself, it was the devil, it says, who was working to motivate Judas to betray Jesus. And the fact that the betrayer Judas is among them, is in this room, teaches us how far-reaching the illustration of foot washing goes. Jesus will excuse Judas. He won't be there for all the teaching, but before he excuses them, he makes sure that he participates in this humble service. And so Judas is in the room. It's hard to imagine a a more powerful proof of Jesus' command, love your enemies, than this. Judas is still there. Foot washing example is amazing enough, as we're going to see, but that Judas is in the room, it just makes it that much more amazing, that much more profound. We might say the love that Jesus has for his own, we might say it spills over in this moment onto Judas. His comment about the devil's work in no way means that the devil was in charge of this situation. And we see that kind of come out a little bit in the next verse, in verse 3. What does it say there? Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, was going back to God. This is a, a, there's a sense in this verse which we realize that it's not Satan that's orchestrating these plans. It's God who is sovereign. God is the one who is orchestrating these plans. And so then, finally, in verse 4, the pace of the narrative really slows down, becomes very vivid. You know that because you get a lot of details. So where there are a lot of details, it it becomes very vivid in our mind. So verse 4, you can imagine it even in your mind before I read it again as I kind of build the setting a little bit. You, You know that the disciples are sitting down at a low table, which was common in their day. There are these thin mats that would be around the table, and each disciple is, is reclining near that table. Most would probably be leaning on their left arm, being right-handed, as most people are. Their legs are stretched outside from the table, and they're eating, eating the meal, and all of a sudden, Jesus adjusts himself, and he gets up. He stands up. And so look at verse 4. Jesus, it says, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel. He tied it around his waist. 
He takes off his outer garment. He wraps a towel around himself. He, he basically takes on the attire of a slave. He dons the uniform of a servant. Takes a basin, large bowl, and he proceeds to wash the feet of the disciples. Verse 5, then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This towel would have been, uh, that was wrapped around Jesus would have been fashioned at the, the shoulder, likely, and it would be long enough for him to dry the disciples' feet. This method of washing would have included a basin or a large bowl and a large jar of water, by which, of course, they don't have running water, and so he'd pour the water over uh, these feet, and then he would take that towel and wipe the dirt off and dry the feet with a towel. We need to understand, as we look at this example of humble service, as we read about this event, that the washing of a friend's feet was not a normal practice in Jesus' day. This wasn't a routine thing that people did with their friends. Not at all. This was a task reserved for the lowliest of servants. In fact, the Jewish, in the Jewish mind, it wasn't even uh, that a Jewish slave would do this act. This was, this was reserved for a, only a Gentile slave would do this kind of thing, would wash another person's feet. In fact, there is no written example in history. Antiquity has no example in all that's written from history. There's no example of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. This is the only evidence of history that this ever happened, that a superior would wash the feet of an inferior. You might say it's absolutely unprecedented. It's unparalleled. There's nothing like this recorded. And so having washed the disciples' feet, as we've seen here, we come to our first truth. Let me reiterate our big idea just to remind you this morning. Jesus' example of humble service gives us two truths of the Christian calling, two truths of the Christian calling. And the first one is this, we have been washed. We have been washed washed. Let's pick it up at verse 6, and you'll see this uh, will be revealed here as we continue. Verse 6 says, he, Jesus, came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Enter stage left, Simon Peter. There's something about Simon Peter, especially in this text, well, so many texts, that we just enjoy. His audacity makes him just come to life in the narrative. His story is filled with such highs and such lows. He just seems so real to us. We can absolutely relate to him on so many levels. And there's moments of such great victory in Peter's life, and there are moments of great defeat I suppose, as there are, as there is in our lives. As an example, you recall Matthew 16, where Peter makes that bold affirmation of who Jesus is. You are the Christ, the Son of God. And then in that same chapter, just moments later, what is Jesus turning and saying to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. So many events like this happen in Peter's life or the time that Peter says that he would never deny Jesus. I would never deny you. 
Of course, what does Jesus say? Well, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me. And then there's that vivid scene in the Gospels where they connect eyes. Jesus turns and sees Peter. And, and Peter, what does he do? He runs away and weeps bitterly. It's the lowest moment of anyone's life, I would imagine. And yet, the end of the Gospel of John, what does Jesus do? He goes to him, right? And he gives him that opportunity to, to kind of make it right, so to speak, by asking him, do you love me? And he, three times he says, yes, I do. So Peter is, is just this amazing character in the gospel record. And so here we have him again uh, in this example. And so John 13, there's no mention of any other disciple. The only disciple we read about is Peter here. And we're, not, we're told that uh, he's washing the feet and then finally he comes to Simon Peter. And Simon, of course, Peter, he has to interject something. And so he does. He says, Lord, do you, and the, the pronouns are very emphatic in the original, do you wash my feet? You can underline that in your Bible. And so Jesus' response in verse 7 is very interesting. What I am doing, Jesus says, you do not understand now. You do not understand now. But afterwards, he says, you will understand. Apparently, Jesus intends for there to be a kind of mystery in what is happening. He says openly that Peter will not understand. However, Jesus does say that Peter will understand afterwards. So at some point in the future, likely after the resurrection, Peter and the disciples will come to understand. They'll be able to look back at this foot washing and realize Jesus was teaching the necessity of humbling himself in order to serve them. Jesus had to become a servant, had to become a slave for them to have life. What does Jesus say in John 20, verse 26? Whoever would be great among you must become a servant, and whoever would become first must become a slave. Peter steps in again, verse 8. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. You shall never wash my feet. And so Peter is humble enough to see the oddity of Christ's action. He knows who Jesus is. He's, he's humble enough to see what's going on here, yet he's proud enough to actually command Jesus. And so the response of Jesus in verse 8 moves the example from the physical to the spiritual. From the physical to the spiritual. Verse 8. Jesus answered him, or the second part of verse 8, Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And so this interruption, which is what it is, this interruption from Peter, provides Jesus with just the opportunity that he needs to expand this teaching moment. And so he does that in what follows we have this kind of teaching moments with our kids. You want to teach your kids about patience, teach them how to tie their shoes, right? That, that, that teaching them how to tie their shoes becomes a, a lesson on you're going to have to practice. You're going to have to be patient. You're not going to have to get frustrated the moment that it doesn't work out because it's not going to work out right away. And so they're not going to be successful at first. We're not going to be successful at first. And so we have to speak to our children about being diligent, having patience, 
putting in practice. And if we're honest, in these kind of teaching moments when we're interrupted or when we're trying to teach our kids and it's challenging, if we're honest, we find ourselves frustrated sometimes in these moments. I know I do. When teaching your son how to use the lawnmower turns into a lesson about how to be aware of his surroundings as he runs over the extension cord. When teaching your daughter how to bake a cake turns into a lesson on how to listen very carefully to mom's instruction as she dumps an extra cup of flour into the batter. What's the point? Well, here, Jesus has the 12 gathered. This is the last night he will be with his disciples. They're assembled together in a secret setting. It's been prepared. And Jesus has a litany of things he wants to teach them. And his first agenda item is to wash their feet, demonstrate through an example of what it looks like to serve one another. He puts on the uniform of a slave. He washes their feet. And the plan was going great until Simon Peter. And so here we are. Peter interrupts. Now, unlike you and me, Jesus is not phased by his cavalier nature. In fact, Jesus welcomes the opportunity and uses this opportunity to teach us a most valuable lesson. And that truth is found in the second half of verse 8. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Of course, when Jesus uses that word wash, he has a double meaning in mind. And this will become very clear as the narrative continues, as he speaks about Judas here in a moment. While it may be true that Jesus must wash Peter's feet in order for them to share a meal together, that's likely true, Jesus is also using the concept of washing to refer to something more significant than a mere physical washing. You know, of course, that cleansing or washing in the Bible is a, is a metaphor for spiritual cleansing. It's used time and time again. You know David's confession in Psalm 51. David says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Or 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Understand what Jesus says to Peter is true for everyone. Unless the Lamb of God, unless the Lamb of God has taken away your sins, unless he has washed you, we have no share with him. And to have a part or a share in Jesus is to be linked to him, to be identified with him, to be washed by him, to confess him as Lord, to be his subject, to call him our king. Hearing these words of Jesus, that to be washed by Jesus is to have a share with him, Peter goes all in. He, he double downs. Verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Wash every part of me. It's obvious, right? Peter doesn't understand what Jesus is getting at. He doesn't understand the meaning of the washing that Jesus is referring to. And Peter's interjection reveals his willful or headstrong approach to life. He wants to dictate the terms of the washing. Peter's suggestion that Jesus wash his head and his hands misses the point entirely. Peter is simply not connecting the dots. Thankfully, 
Jesus, so patient. He provides some help in verses 10 and 11. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you, he says, are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus clarifies with a well-known truth of his day, a a common knowledge, it's common knowledge, it's axiomatic common knowledge that a man who bathes himself does not need to bathe his entire body when he arrives at a friend's house to share a meal. The man only needs to wash his feet. Why? Well, because only his feet have become dirty on the way over to his friend's house. This might be similar to kind of hand washing in our day. When we go to a friend's house to have dinner, we don't come in and say, can I use your shower? We don't need to do all that. But what do we need to do? Probably wash our hands, right? We should. We're going to wash our hands and clean our hands before we eat. And so we only need to wash our hands when we go to a friend's house. And a similar kind of illustration Jesus is using here, that we don't need to bathe, but we do need to wash our feet. And so it's this well-known truth that Jesus turns into a teaching point about the spiritual cleanliness of those in the room. And here we discover, as I've said, Jesus is not merely talking about foot washing. He's talking about something more than that. And and that's revealed in the words that he, he says about Judas. That's why we know he's not just talking about foot washing. He says at the end of verse 10, and you are clean, but not every one of you. Because Judas isn't clean. And again in verse 11, not all of you are clean. And it's important to kind of Pick it up, you don't really see it in the English because we don't have a plural form of you, except unless you're talking to Matt Posey and he says y'all, right? That's the, that's the plural form of you. And so if we're like from Texas, then we would say in verse 11 or verse 10, and y'all are clean, but not every one of you, singular, okay? And so that's what Jesus is doing there. That's what we, can we see that Jesus is talking about you've all been clean, but there's one person here who hasn't been clean. He hasn't been washed by me. This is more than just a foot washing. Something else Jesus is talking about here in this passage. And so this little phrase is a clue. Jesus is opening the door to reveal something deeper about the foot washing example. Again, Jesus said to Peter, and you are clean. Well, what does Jesus mean by that, that you are clean? As I see it, Jesus can only mean that Peter and the disciples have been forgiven. That's what that spiritual washing means. They have been trusted their lives to Jesus and have been washed of their sins, and so they're clean. Now, of course, the cross hasn't happened yet, right? And so the disciples, before the cross, they looked, as we say, they looked forward to the cross. They put their, their belief and their trust in Jesus as they looked forward to the events of the cross in which Jesus would die for, for their sins. We... We entrust our lives to Jesus, and we, we don't look forward to the cross. We look back at the cross. We reflect on the cross, and we, that the, the cross is the foundation of our faith. And so they look forward in trusting that Jesus would pay, pay the penalty for their, sins, for their sins. We look back at the cross. Either way, they had professed faith in Jesus, and so they were washed. They were cleansed. They were believers, you might say. Two applications from this point. 
If you have not been washed by Jesus, well, you are spiritually unclean. That's a natural implication of this, this text. If you haven't believed, if you don't know Jesus, then you're not clean. You're spiritually uncleaned, which means you will not be accepted by God, which leads us to give you the charge, come to Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be washed. Jesus, John explained it earlier in his gospel. John 3, 36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son does not believe. That's what he means there about obeying the Son, not believing. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But, it says, the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God abides on him because he hasn't believed. And so for those who will not swear allegiance to Jesus, for those who will not bathe in the free gift of redemption, they're marked for judgment, targeted for judgment. If you don't know Jesus this morning, the wrath of God, friend, abides on you. And so you must turn to him. You must entrust your life to him. Believe in him. To find forgiveness, all you need to do is agree with God. Agree with God about your sin and agree with God about who the Savior is. Entrust your life to him and be saved. Second application is for those who have been cleansed. If you have been cleansed and you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, friend, no offense, you need your feet washed. You need your feet washed. Look at verse 10 again. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. Except for his feet. We need our feet washed. This involves, of course, the daily work in us helping us, God's daily work in us, helping us to turn from sin and become more obedient to Christ moment by moment, day by day. And God has given us tools to do that with, right? Call them spiritual disciplines, call them the means of grace, call it just discipleship. Call it whatever you want, Bible reading, prayer, fellowship with one another. All these things, these are tools that God uses to shape us and to wash us into the image of Jesus here at RBC, growth groups, Sunday school classes, men's and women's ministries, all of these things are designed so that you would engage in those ministries and God would be cleansing you. He'd be washing you. Not a salvation wash, unless you don't believe, then you need to believe and you be washed. But as a Christian, it's that idea, it's a metaphor that we're having our feet washed. We only need to wash except for our feet Spurgeon said it this way, those who follow in the footsteps of Christ must have clean feet. Are your feet clean? Do they need to be cleaned? If they're dirty, how are you going to get them washed this week, this afternoon, tomorrow, even in this moment? And so, verses 12 through 17 as we continue here, Jesus resumes his place and asks a question. 
And the question reveals there's something else behind the foot washing. The foot washing, yes, is an example for the disciples to follow. And here we come to our second truth. Again, let me give you the big idea. Jesus' example of humble service gives us two truths of the Christian calling, two truths of our Christian calling. Number one, we have been washed, which we just looked at. And number two, finally, we are to wash others. We are to wash others. Others. Look at verses 12 through 15. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. The duty here, the, the obligation, is found in verse 14 there. It's founded on the fact that the one calling us, the disciples, to this obligation is both teacher and Lord. It's a powerful argument. It's a powerful argument. Jesus is arguing from the greater to the lesser. If he, the one that they rightly call, the one that we rightly call Lord and teacher, if, if this one washes our feet, then we're obligated to wash one another's feet. And of course, the point here has less to do with the actual washing of feet and more to do with the, the shame that's associated with the act. It's, a, it's, it's the, the work or the labor of a slave. The point is that Jesus, their Lord and teacher, lowered himself to the place of a servant. And while some have taken the command to literally wash the feet of others, some religions, even some branches of Mennonites have done that as well. They've, they've taken it too, too far, so to, so to speak. They've established some kind of religious rite here in this passage that's not the point of the passage. The point is that we are ready, we ought to be ready, to stand ready to perform the lowliest service of one another or for one another. And so again, verse 14 uses that language of obligation, language of obligation. He says, you also ought, that's that word, you can circle it, you ought to wash one another's feet. That's an obligation. What, what is an obligation? Well, an obligation is simply something that we're bound to. We're bound to maybe by contract. We're bound to by gratitude, you might say. It's a duty. It's a commitment. Being obligated to do something implies that we are bound by nature, by contract, or bound by gratitude. In which case, as Christians, what are we bound to? Or what are we bound by? We are bound by gratitude, we are bound by gratitude. I'm just going to look over at 2 Corinthians. I have this note. I've got to read this passage. 2 Corinthians. You can write it down or go there if you're quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Paul makes the point, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see that? The love of Christ compels us. 
We're compelled, we're motivated because of what Jesus did on the cross for his love for us. There's, there are lots of ways to be motivated to do things. Fear is a motivator. Shame. Lots of different ways we motivate people. What is the principal way that God motivates our obedience to him? Is it fear? Is it guilt? No. The primary way is love. That's how he motivates us. He, he serves us and he, he does something so filled with love that the love of Christ controls us. We're so wrapped up in his love that, all, that we can't do anything else but be obedient. It's the principal way that God motivates us to or obedience, I believe. I believe that bears itself out in Scripture as a whole. And so we're obligated, but we're obligated because of gratitude, because of the love that he has and he shared for us. What is he doing here? He's washing the disciples' feet. He's performing an act of a slave and then calling them to obey. It's amazing. Jesus himself said, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The love that Jesus has for us poured over into service, the service of the cross, ultimately. And the obligation to serve one another is rooted in his great love for us. And so our Christian calling is to serve one another, to wash one another. And that's rooted in the extent of his love. You remember how this all opened. It says, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the uttermost, in the fullest measure. Philippians 2.18, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Look at verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant, a slave, that's the word doulos there, a slave, is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Proverb from Jesus reminds the disciples of their place. They were slaves. And as slaves, they shouldn't think too highly of themselves. If their master, remember their Lord and teacher, if their master, the one they called teacher and Lord, if he gave us this humble example, if our master, he's not just their Lord and teacher, he's not just their master, he's our master. If our master... He's given us this humble example of foot washing. Well, we should not think of any act of service below us or too low for us. If we are slaves of Christ, then we will wash one another. A slave is not greater than his master. Passage ends in verse 17 with a blessing, a beatitude. If you know these things, blessed are you, if you do them. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The disciples were to be blessed not simply by knowing the things that Jesus has illustrated and spoken, but by doing them, by actually putting them to work. James said, be doers of the word, right? Be doers of the word and not merely hearers or not hearers only. And so the Bible, our Lord is teaching us that knowing the right things has no value unless we do the right things. We are blessed, not because of what we know, 
but because of what we do with what we know. So what have you done with what you know? Better yet, what will? Aren't you thankful for new opportunities? His mercies are new every day. What will we do with what we know? What will we do? I'm going to close with an illustration. You know, in preaching class, they tell you never introduce a new illustration in your conclusion. I'm going to break the rule. Okay, I'm breaking the rule. Closing illustration. I'm sure you know what an echo is, right? You know what an echo is. An echo is as a reflection of sound that arrives at the listener with a delay. That's what an echo is. If you ever watch someone do something from afar, you know how an echo works. You know, growing up on a lake, fishing at a lake, not growing up on a lake, but being at a lake when you're a kid, you know, you can hear the echo way across the water. You know, dad's always like, be quiet, they can hear you over there. Because you can hear really, really far. You watch, you watch somebody chop wood from afar and they chop and it takes a long time to get there. You know what an echo is. Well, when we serve each other, when we serve each other, we don't serve to receive something or earn something from God. When we serve each other, we don't, we don't do that to earn something or to receive something from God. Rather, service to others is an echo of the service that we have received. Service is an echo of the service that we have received. And the echo of Jesus' example, the foot washing, the cross, the echo of that is seen in us when we take on a lowly task. We accept a lesser role. We refuse to insist on our own rights, on our own privileges. We hear the echo. We put the needs of others above our own. When we look for a job that no one else will do, and we do it with joy. We hear the echo of Jesus' example of humble service when we focus on the results that are achieved and not on who gets the credit with your kids, your job, in your marriage. Or as Philippians 2, 4 says, when we look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. How profound. Imagine a life like that. Jesus, how profound. Jesus did that. He expressed the greatest love by dying for us. He humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the death of Jesus is that action. It's that action far off in the distance that sends an echo down through history and reaches us. And it's an echo, a sound of service that we pick up and we pass it along. We pass the echo on, you might say. So our service toward one another is the echo of the service we have 
received. May we model the humble service that Jesus has modeled for us, and may we fulfill our Christian calling by serving one another as Christ has served us. What will you do with what you know? Amen.